So I have the responsibility to bring the sermon this morning, and I wanted to share with you uh, the next spot in line. Last week, we, we wrapped up through verse 17, and today we're going to take a look at Matthew 4, 18 through 22. But uh, before we get started, I have, I have a confession to make. Um, if, you've, if you know me at all, or if you've known me for any length of period of time, uh, you might know this about me, but, but I am a lapsed hunter. If you're not sure what a lapsed hunter is, I don't blame you, but it's pretty simple. It's someone who used to hunt, but doesn't hunt anymore. Um, as a child, I used to take special vacations with my father, and and we would wander through the mountains of eastern Washington in search of deer and elk. Um, my dad taught me everything I needed to know during those time periods about shooting and, and hunting and how to care for my deer how to walk quietly through the woods. I promptly forgot how to do that one. Um, and even to survive comfortably in crummy weather, if you know that about me, I'm, I'm a survival guy. I want to be comfortable all the time. So um, critical in my training as a young hunter. Um, but as with most hunters, I've always had some curiosity about an adjacent outdoor sport. Fishing. You know, I, I've purchased all the gear. I've, I've got all of that. I've, I've got some fishing poles. I, I have this tackle box that I've had since I was like 16. It's got stickers on it that don't make any sense to me as an adult. Um, you know, there's hooks in there, various sizes, most of which I don't know what they matter to or mean. And I even have a few lures that are also extremely confusing. And, you know, I've been fishing probably 20 or 30 times with some of you even maybe. Um, and I've even accidentally caught a few fish. But I've never really been a fisherman. Some of my friends or their dads have attempted to show me the basics of the sport. But I haven't really gotten past bobbers and worms and, frankly, power bait. To me, fishing is mostly about sitting in a really, really comfortable camp chair, kicking my feet up, holding a pole, and telling fish stories, right? I think that that really wraps it for me when it comes to fishing. Uh, today, we're going to look at the story of four fishermen and their interaction with Jesus as he goes for a walk on the Sea of Galilee. So if you'll take a look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. While Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with their Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the fact that it has the ability to speak to our hearts. It has the ability to change our minds and our hearts. God, it has the ability 
that cause us to focus on you. And we, this morning, I pray, Lord, that it does just that for us, that it will cause us to understand you in a deeper way, Lord, and understand what you've called each and every one of us to do. In your name, amen. All right, so there are a few things uh, that stand out to me in our passage today, three, because every pastor has only three points. That's all you're allowed to have. It's one of the things they teach you in seminary, so uh, I only have three points. First, disciples are not perfect people. I think if you and I were drafting a team of disciples or men to go out and preach the gospel and turn the world upside down, we probably would start looking at the best seminaries in the world. We might go to Dallas Theological or Masters or Southern. Those are all American seminaries. I don't know anything overseas. Um, or we might go to some of the mega churches and look for pastors there that could do that job. But Jesus didn't look there. There certainly were places like that in the first century, but Jesus didn't look for his disciples in those places. He called the rough and the broken, the outcast. Every one of those people were uniquely sinners. Now, if you've ever watched an episode of The Deadliest Catch, anybody ever watched that show? It's crazy. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you probably saw a commercial as you're flipping through, saw a Discovery Channel commercial for it. It looks insane. Life out on the waters in Alaska catching crabs. Um, you certainly can understand what it takes uh, for a person in that career to succeed. Got to be pretty rough people to be able to deal with difficult times and crummy weather. And while there's certainly a difference between first century fishermen and modern fishermen today, they're both pretty difficult jobs. They've always been difficult and dirty and extremely manual labor careers. So for Peter, Andrew, James, and John in our passage today, these guys weren't weekend fishermen fresh off a stop at Cabela's with some brand new lures. Again, I don't know what those do, but they're pretty and colorful. Um, or a fancy fishing hat, right? That's not who these guys were. They were career fishermen. Difficult guys used to difficult work in rough water. They were partners with James and John's father in his fishing company. And while they came from probably different socioeconomic classes, Andrew and Peter were a little bit older and probably a little less well-to-do. James and John were a little bit more affluent. But regardless, they were, they were all four of them rough and tumble men. They had plenty of character flaws, and they showed little potential for dependability or much less greatness. And this wouldn't be the last time that Jesus would call these men, and it wouldn't be the last time he found them returning to their nets. They weren't perfect guys. Just a few examples from just the book of Matthew. There are plenty of examples throughout the Gospels and Acts of their imperfections, but just a couple from Matthew. In Matthew 14, you find them trying to send people away to find their own lunch. There are thousands of people there, and they want to send them away to find their own food. And in Matthew 19, you find them rebuking people who brought children to Jesus. In Matthew 18, we see some pride of a willingness to forgive up to even seven times. Jesus says 70 
times 7. We see them unable to even stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times they fell asleep. Guys aren't perfect. Jesus said, stay awake. Off they fell asleep again. Even with these character flaws and many more, God chose to use them. He saw them as the raw material from which he would use to make useful tools. You and I are just like the disciples in that way. We all have flaws. We all have shortcomings. We struggle with sin, and often we lose that battle magnificently. I know I do. We might not be highly educated. You look at the disciples, very few of them have great education. You might not have a charismatic personality. You might not be a good speaker or disciplined or confident. You might not be a perfect example to the people around you. But if we look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27, it talks about this and it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many were wise according to the world's standard. Not many were powerful and not many were noble birthed. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Despite our inadequacy and our personal struggles, God chooses to use imperfect people, just like he used the disciples. I have a few questions for you. Do you, do you feel inadequate? Do you feel like you can't be used of God until you figure some stuff out in your life? What holds you back from following after Jesus? Remember, Jesus didn't pick perfect people. He calls real people, just like you and me, to follow him. So we know the disciples weren't perfect people, but number two, the disciples would learn along the way. If you take a look at our passage in verse 20 and 22, you see how the disciples responded to Jesus's call to follow him. There's almost an exact response between the two different groups of disciples. In verse 20, Peter and Andrew immediately leave their nets and followed him. And in verse 22, James and John immediately left their boat and their father and followed him. So the first thing we can see there is that their response was immediate. They left their nets and their boats and their family, and they followed after Jesus. The implication is that they left all the obligation of their career and the obligation of family behind. They realized the importance of obedience to what Jesus was calling them to do and they were only beginning to understand that there was going to be a cost. Well, Peter and Andrew left their job and their boat behind. James and John left ownership in a family business that was quite profitable. Luke points out that Zebedee had many boats, and Mark mentions that Zebedee had hired lots of other fishermen to work for him. Their mother, later in the Gospels, their mother Salome, appears 
to be well off and financially supporting Jesus' ministry, yet they left all of that security behind. Following Jesus always has a cost. It might have an impact on our career, our friends, or even our family. I know as a young man, I remember my father telling me and probably preaching from the pulpit about how he came to his conversion story and he came to Christ. The response of his very Catholic family was to kick him out of the house. Well, that might not be a common response in our modern Western culture. It's certainly possible that we could lose family and friends and that they would abandon us for following Jesus. There's often a cost to following Jesus. The second thing we notice here is that the disciples' response is that regardless of that cost, they chose to follow. I know it seems extremely basic, but it's important. The word here for follow that Jesus uses in verse 19 is what you might expect. It means to come after or to follow after him. However, the word in verse 20 and 22 where it says the disciples followed, is a completely different word. It means to follow a teacher, or to follow with the intent to imitate someone. The idea that comes to mind for me is uh, like a, a little child that would follow an older sibling around the house, and they do copycat. You know, they do everything that their older brother or sister would do, and that method results in learning, right? They learn how to do all sorts of things. If you had kids, sometimes you often taught your first child how to tie their shoes, and the second and third and fourth kids, uh, they learn from the other kids, right? So they copycat. They learn to do what the big kids do. It's that same way that I learned to hunt by following my dad through the mountains, or that many of my friends learned to fish from their fathers. We watched what they did, and we imitated that. That's exactly what Jesus was inviting the disciples to do. By leaving their nets, they agreed to watch, learn, and emulate the life and action of Jesus. We're called to do the same thing. The minute we put our faith in Jesus, we accept the invitation of Jesus to follow him. And then we make a commitment with our lives to watch Jesus to learn from him in his word and his example, and then to emulate him so that the world can know who he is. When we look at Jesus, the one that we're called to follow after, we find that, of course, there are lots of great examples and principles to emulate. I could choose a long list, but there are just a few that stood out to me as I was pondering. First, he was available. Jesus didn't show favoritism. He was sensitive to the needs of those around him. He showed love and tenderness to others. He took time. He had time for other people. He told people why he came. And he asked for a public profession of their faith. So just like you, I don't have all of these qualities. I might not even have two or three two or three of them. The disciples didn't start with them either. They learned from Jesus over time as they followed and imitated what he did. So we know, number one, that the disciples weren't perfect. Number two, 
they learned along the way. And number three, we learn that disciples are fishers of men. So now we're getting into the, the action of the passage, right? They go out and fish for men. Jesus tells Peter, Andrew, James, and John that he will make them fishers of men. Well, we know that these were rough and tumble men with lots of personal growth ahead of them. They had some raw skills that came from being fishermen. They had patience. They knew how to wait. They understand that it took time to catch fish. They had perseverance. They would go from place to place and back and forth and over and over again. They had good instincts. They know the right place to be and the right time to go fishing. They were courageous men. There were storms out on the Lake of Galilee. Mishaps that happened. It's dangerous. They kept out of sight, stay out of sight of the fish. It wasn't about them, but it was about Jesus. Jesus was going to take those skills and transform fishermen into fishers of men. The ultimate goal Jesus had in this calling was to build men that would seek to reach lost souls, to share the gospel with them, and to bring others to Jesus. Just like the disciples, every one of us has some raw skill that God will develop in us. Often when we lack the necessary skills, God will give us spiritual gifts that we never had before. These are all tools that he will use to make us fishers of men. How's God gifted you? Are you good with numbers? Are you good with cars? Are you good with food? Are you skilled in speaking? Do you have an eye for graphic design? Are you a good listener? You show care for others? God has made you in a particular way so that he can use you to go and make disciples. He intends to use that particular set of skills that he's given you. He's given you a new and eternal purpose to share hope in Jesus Christ with others. So when when we feel inadequate, as I often do, I could stand up here this morning, but if you talked to Henty this morning, I felt pretty inadequate. When I bump up against people at my job or bump up against people at my house or in my neighborhood, I can often feel inadequate and not be comfortable with sharing. We can take comfort that for you and me to be effective, it takes God's power. He says in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, in the Great Commission, Jesus confirms that it's him that empowers us. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus empowers us to share the gospel. It's not you, it's him. That's the good news, the life and death of Jesus. You and I, we've got a huge sin problem. 
God's standard is perfection, and we often fall so, so short of that. Even one single sin means that we don't merit salvation. It means that we're going to suffer the consequence of our sin through eternal separation from God in hell. But God has provided a solution. The same Jesus that called the disciples in this passage paid the price for you and I. Well, we could never live a perfect life. Jesus did. Today we're in Matthew chapter 4, but 23 chapters from where we are right now in the book of Matthew, Jesus will go to the cross and he will die for your sin. He will die for my sin. The one who never sinned will take our sin on himself and suffer our consequences. Three days later, a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating this exact thing. Three days later, he will rise from the dead and defeat death and the penalty of sin. If we place our faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, he will save us from the penalty of our sin. And you'll be able to spend eternity in heaven with him. That's the good news that we're called to share with others. It's not complicated. It's simple. We can share that with our neighbors. Can share that with our coworkers. We can share that with our family who are lost. Even when there seems to be no hope in the bondage of sin, there is always hope in Jesus Christ. So, hey, if you're not here today, and this is the first time you've heard it that way, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I ask you to do, do that today. Jesus died for your sin, and he offers you forgiveness. Disciples aren't perfect people. He doesn't expect for you to clean up your life before you come to him. The same is true for believers. Jesus wants to use you. He will work in your life and he'll begin to change you. You might not know how to share the gospel with others. You might be scared or feel like you don't have all the answers that someone might ask. You won't. It's okay. Disciples learn along the way. By spending time in God's word, and emulating the example of Jesus Christ. Finally, we need to share the truth of the gospel with our friends and neighbors because Jesus is to call every one of his disciples to be fishers of men. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you again for your word, Lord, and the calling that you have given each and every one of us to reach out to our family, Lord, to reach out to the lost, and to share the hope that you have given every believer, the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope of salvation. Lord, I pray that we can take this example of the disciples here as you called them to be fishers of men, Lord, and emulate it in our own lives and reach out to those who need you in your name.